Okay. Matthew chapter 5. Would you mind turning there? Matthew 5. We are uh, three weeks into the teachings of Jesus. We'll be in Matthew 5. We'll start in 17. And for a large part of this week when I was working on this, I had this little... uh, Nursery rhyme is not the right phrase for it, but childhood school song in the back of my head. And I, I, I couldn't even remember the words... Even if it was a real song, and last night I said to my wife, I said, I said, I'm going to say stuff to you. Does this sound at all familiar? And I got it mostly wrong, and so she said, I don't know. But going back and forth, I was, I was convinced it was a thing. It did happen. And then uh, this morning I watched a bunch of YouTubes. I'm sure what I'm about to say to you is not original to me. When I was a kid, there was this thing the teacher would do with you. Uh, I'm going on a bear hunt. I'm going on... Is that... You know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, for some reason, I had amnesia. Okay, I'm going on a bear hunt. Going on a bear hunt. Got my binoculars. And you, like, repeat after the teacher. Got my binoculars. And then eventually you get to an obstacle. Like, um, there's some tall, wavy grass. Oh, no. And then the the teacher would go, well, you can't go over it. And you can't go over it. And you can't go around it. What do we do? We got to go through it, right? And you go obstacle, 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 uh, hunting this bear. Well, now we don't hunt the bear. We bring our camera. In the modern renditions, we bring cameras with us, uh, which is the last thing I would suggest if you're looking for a bear, to, going to get a bear. Bring a gun. But anyway, uh, all these obstacles, you, know, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. What do you do? What do you do? And today we're going to talk about this concept that is like a wall in the Bible. And the concept is that of righteousness. Like when we allow the Bible to describe for us what true righteousness looks like, it can feel like this formidable wall or this obstacle of how do I get over that? Like, I, I'm not that. I can't get over it. Or some people just choose to ignore it altogether. Like, uh, they'll go under it. <laughs> like, it's not really there. There's nothing to see here. Um, what, do, what we're going to deal with today is, is, what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that the Bible puts in front of us a picture of righteousness and holiness that is so big And so great that you and I know we can't get over it. If we're going to stare it straight in the face, we know we can't get over it. And even if we ignore it and try to like go under it or around it, it's still there. And it sits in us as this is still true. What do we do? And it's all going to center on on Jesus and his teaching here. A few weeks ago, he taught us the sorts of attributes or qualities of a person that God honors or sees or is drawn to, someone who knows their need of God, who mourns at things, the Lord will comfort them, person who's meek, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is pure of heart. These 
we had this list of sort of people who are sort of welcomed towards the kingdom of God. And then last week we talked about purpose. That following that list, the Lord uh, Jesus himself teaches to those who are following him, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, right? Your distinctness is important precisely because it's different. If salt's to lose its flavor, it's no good. If light is to be covered up, who would do that? So the distinctiveness that draws you to God and God to you is for a purpose. That was last week. Well, this week we're going to deal with this notion of righteousness, which in the Bible is often called the law. It's often called the law, which... Uh, it's just a, a, kind of a flat word, and a lot of us have mindsets. We're going to flesh that out today. What What is meant by the law? But here's what Jesus is going to say. Let me just read verse 17. He's going to say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. Now, the phrase law and prophets, it might be capitalized in your Bible. This is a Hebrew shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? So Jesus is saying, don't think, when you look at my ministry and you hear what I say and you see how I act, don't think that I've come, I've come along to abolish thousands of years of Hebrew scripture and thinking and anticipation. He says, I haven't come to tear it down. Not at all. I'm not, you may see me as being different, but I'm not indifferent to the law. You may see me not behaving in a way that's customary to your religious uh, customs, but that doesn't mean that I don't see, that I'm not as closely attentive to the goals and purposes of Scripture. Uh, Well, it be hard to say that Jesus is as attentive to the scripture as us. <laughs> He's saying, like, I've come to fulfill them. You can imagine people who, and this happens to us, right? At some at one point in our lives, we have this way of learning, like, what does it mean to worship? And if we're not careful at another point in our life, how we our customs of how we worship, we have a way of saying, well, that's what worship is. When so much of it is custom. So much of it is custom. And I think a lot of people would see Jesus in his ministry and they would see that he would behave in a very uncustomary way. So uncustomary that they thought he's clearly not, he's clearly something other than what we are. The, the Jews who had their strong traditions and customs would look at the way, for example, Jesus would deal with the Sabbath. They would say, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Healing is work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. You have to rest. You can't do any work on the Sabbath. To which Jesus would reply, well, work this out for me then. Tell me, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or evil on the Sabbath? You see, it's not that Jesus didn't care about the Sabbath. He just viewed it differently. So he says, hey, I haven't come to this big wall of righteousness that you and I have to figure out how to get over. At no point does Jesus ever stare at that wall and go, just go around it. Just go under it. 
I got a better idea. Let's just tear it down and we can move on our way. He says, don't think I came to do that. I didn't. In fact, he says, I came to fulfill it. If we're going to think about Hebrew law, we say the word law and we think um, speed limits, don't steal. Um, that's typically how we think of laws. Uh, the word that shows up in your New Testament law usually is linked to the Hebrew concept, which we call Torah, which is their way of life. That God had given them a way of life that translates law, but for them it was much more vibrant and much had way more, to, way more than just rules. It had the way to live possessed in it. And so are these, these levels. So you might think at one level in, in Hebrew law was what you would call the moral, we'll just group a couple, the moral and judicial level of law. What am I supposed to do and not do? Like Ten Commandments, that would be moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart mind and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's moral law. And then connected to moral law was this idea of judicial law, of how am I supposed to treat my neighbor? Um, how am I supposed to prioritize my rights and my responsibilities and all my moral obligations in the midst of life? So I know I'm not supposed to lie, but um, how am I supposed to treat the sojourner who comes through my land? Or how am I supposed to treat a slave? Or how am I supposed to treat my neighbor? These, this dimension of law, uh, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that. I've come to fulfill that. And when he says that, what he means is, I, Jesus himself, this is the claim he's making, is that I am satisfying all the claims of Scripture. All, the description of righteousness, this big wall, this looming thing that sits in front of us, and we think we could never be that good. Jesus is saying, I am that good. I have never done anything wrong. I have only done right. Matthew 4 is the story of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And so for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. We get three examples of that in the fourth chapter of ways that Satan tries to tempt him. And in all these cases, while, even though tempted, Jesus remains without sin. It's a bold claim. It's hard for me to imagine I, when I imagine the claim Jesus is without sin, I come, I come to the conclusion: well, he must not be like me. Like, but he is saying, I have come to satisfy. When he says fulfill, at one level, he's saying, I have come to satisfy the righteous demands of the moral and the judicial law. I've come to exemplify them. I not only always do right; I always do right in the right way with the right person in the right measure. I always see the person as they're supposed to see, be seen. I always know how I'm supposed to prioritize my life. My life is perfectly ordered and moral. That's what Jesus is saying. Beneath this moral and judicial mindset, there is this other part of law or Torah, which we call the ceremonial law. This is the part in the Bible where, you know, 
if you've ever thought, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you get halfway through Exodus, and you like crash and burn because it got really boring all of a sudden, this is the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is a law about sacrifice. It's a law about cleanliness. Law about what you're allowed to eat, what you're allowed to drink, how you're supposed to dress. All of these sort of the priests. What are the priests supposed to do? How do they, what sacrifice do you bring the priests? And how do the priests properly sacrifice that sacrifice? And what do they wear? And on what days do they go into the tabernacle? And by the way, what's the tabernacle supposed to look like? And how big is it? And what's it supposed to do? And when does it move? And how all of that ceremony, all of that ceremony is in the law. And when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, I think he's saying more than simply, I've come to meet the high righteous standard that God intends morally and judiciously. He's also saying, in a different way, I've come to fulfill the ceremonial law. And by that he means, I've come to embody all that it was suggesting. So, Because of Jesus, as the whole story plays out, right? as the whole life of Christ plays out all the way through his death and resurrection, because of Jesus, you and I don't need to worry about what we have to wear. We don't, being ceremonially clean is not necessary. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made us clean. We don't have to worry about what we eat because Jesus, is, Jesus has purified our lives from within. We don't have to worry about what we wear because the Lord's worried about what's on the inside, not the outside. We don't have to worry about bringing the right sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't even have to worry about finding the right priest because Jesus isn't just the sacrifice, he's the priest. In fact, we don't even have to find the temple because Jesus claims to be the temple, the sacrifice, the priest. All of it. All of the ceremony that's in the law Jesus is not saying, I fulfilled it like I did it really well. Jesus is saying, it was looking for me and I am it. Even this today, right? The Lord's Supper is not a new ceremony. The church didn't brainstorm the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is Passover seen through Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Let's take the high, holy Jewish day of Passover and let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. That's what it is. So there's this, this interesting thing about the law, because when you talk about the law in one sense, Jesus, the moral and judicial side of the law, Jesus says, I've come and I've not only satisfied it, I've exemplified it. I've shown, I've shown the exemplary way of living. Okay? On the ceremonial law, he doesn't simply say, it's not that Jesus offered the best sacrifice. Jesus is the best sacrifice. So we see in the New Testament, we read, we find no evidence, at least as things kind of work themselves out, we find no evidence of the, any of the apostles being wrapped around the axle about what people are wearing, wrapped around the axle about making sure people get back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make proper sacrifices at the right place and time. You see very little discussion, never any teaching to tell somebody, you know, you really need to be back there for Passover. You don't see any of that. You never, you never see them giving sacrifice again. You just don't find that anymore. You don't find that. And 
And the off-color chances you do, what you find is they're doing it so as to be receptive to their Jewish audience, not because they have to. Why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice. There's one other way that Jesus fulfilled the law, and this is in the, the promissory way. So again, when we say law, we think of rules. When they say law, they think of the, the Jewish Hebrew way of life given to them by God. And in that gift were some promises. God would bring peace. God would bring freedom. Once they had a king, God gave promises about, about how he would bring through that king a one day an eternal king that would establish an eternal kingdom that would stand stand upright for the people of Israel and then in that they would have life. And in these promises, just there was one promise after another through the law and the prophets, through the Old Testament, these promises started to build up to a place where they gained a title, a word for it. They said, we are waiting for a Messiah, a Savior. A Savior's gonna come and he's gonna bring it. And Jesus, when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, he's not just saying moral and judicial. And he's not just saying, I'm, I am embodying the ceremonial, he's saying, I am fulfilling, I am the fulfillment of all the prophetic hope. Matthew's tried to show this already. You, you can listen or you can follow, but um, we're only five chapters into Matthew, but I want to show you something he's, he's done so far. First of all, the book starts with a genealogy. Why? Because there was, in the law, there, in the law of the prophets, there was this prophetic hope that God was going to bring this Savior through the line of Judah, through the line of David. And so the book starts with, by the way, Jesus of Nazareth is from the line of Judah, from the line of David, okay? So that it might be fulfilled. But then you find this, this litany of fulfillment. Chapter 1, verse 22, Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he says what the prophet says. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And he goes and discusses the prophet. 2, verse 15, we see the same thing. It says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he goes on to say the words of the prophet. 2, verse 17, the same thing. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he goes on to talk about Jeremiah. Chapter 3, verse 3. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and we get it again. And then 4 verse 14, we find it one more time. We see, so that what might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. All the way through, Matthew, he's saying, don't you see? He's fulfilled. He's that guy. He's that guy. He's the one. All of our scriptures, everything's pointing at him. What I'm saying is, we look at this wall called righteousness, goodness, holiness. We see this thing, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, like, I can't get over it. I can't climb over it. And Jesus says, you know, then you see someone like Jesus, and you're excited about him, and he's different, and he's not, he's not as religiously bound up as those who've gone before him in the sense of he's not just all custom. He's actually at the heart of it. You think maybe, maybe he's going to take me a different way, but he will not take you a different way. He says, don't think I'm going to take you a different way. I'm not coming to abolish and tear down this wall. I'm coming to satisfy it. 
I'm coming to fulfill it. In Bible study this week, someone said to me, like, John, if you made these claims about yourself, I'd say you were crazy. Like, if you were the moral satisfier of the law and the judicial exemplifier of the law and the ceremonial embodiment of the law and the prophetic personification of the law, if you were to say that to me, I'd say you were crazy. And somebody said, yeah, it would be like you had a Jesus complex. So Jesus has a Jesus complex. That's what we're saying. He is all of that. One other way you might think about it is Jesus looks at the subject of righteousness and he doesn't do away with it. He doesn't wipe it off. He superimposes himself on top of it. All of this, I have done that. And either I've embodied it ceremonially, so now you don't need to do it because you can look to me, or I've satisfied it morally so that I have the right to do these things. Verse 18 doubles down on this a little bit. <clears throat> in, case, in case you were wondering, 18 shows up and it's, it's just as serious. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Iota is a small letter. Your translation might as well say, not the smallest letter of the law will pass away. Meaning, don't look at don't look to me to make this wall smaller. Don't think that you're going to come to me and I'm going to say, oh no, you don't, need to, you don't need to forgive somebody. No, you should forgive somebody. Don't think that I'm going to dumb down the moral claims of Scripture. Even ceremonially, where Jesus has taken over the ceremony, it doesn't mean that the ceremony is obsolete in the sense of, well, it had no purpose. Rather, it's filled up in Christ. So, you don't need a priest anymore, and you don't need to make a sacrifice, and you don't need to go to a temple anymore. You don't need to do those things, but you worship Jesus better when you appreciate that he is your sacrifice, he is your priest, and he is the temple. You, kn you know him better, and you worship him better. Because it's not that that was obsolete, it's that it's been filled up. And Jesus here is saying, listen, don't think this is this none of this is gonna like just become obsolete all of a sudden. This stands, this law stands, this wall of righteousness is what it is until everything is accomplished. Okay. This brings us to these last two verses, nineteen and twenty which get a little more practical. What they're going to deal with is how you view the law, how you view this wall of righteousness has everything to do, it correlates to what you think about Jesus' claims. How you, you're staring at this, this notion of, oh, let's call this wall of righteousness, let me just guy. Get it into plain language. Are you good or aren't you? Okay, that's, that's what the wall challenges you with. Are you good or aren't you? If you can get over the wall, you're good. If you can't get over the wall, you're, I'll be kinder and gentler, you're less than good. Right? Um, 
So how you view this has a lot to do with how you understand the claims of Jesus. And he's going to lay in front of us, he's going to put in front of us two, two don't be that kind of person examples. Okay? Don't be that kind of person. The first one in 19 is going to be this. Don't be the kind of person who sees following Jesus as a license to marginalize the law. To act like, eh, anything goes. Look what he says here in 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't in my name cease, cease doing, cease to enjoy or pursue the moral goodness of the law. Don't say, well, you know, I'm saved through Jesus, therefore, I don't have to do that anymore. I, hey, I'm, all, I'm under grace now. I don't have to care about that. Jesus just saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Don't, shouldn't you still hunger and thirst for righteousness? Shouldn't you still long, long to be better? Shouldn't you still admire the pure in heart? Should we not hunger and thirst for righteousness? Jesus is saying absolutely. And me coming and fulfilling the law should not, should not extinguish that from your spirit. But there have always been people who've made the argument that used the grace of Jesus Christ as their chief argument for sinful freedom. You know, Jesus saved me, now I can do X. I sometimes think this, this starts with some confusion, like this. Uh, they, they look, they hear Christ has fulfilled the law, and then they look in the Old Testament and they see things like wearing wool, you shouldn't wear wool and cotton on the same day, right? You shouldn't wear wool and cotton together, or you can't eat pork. And they go, well, wait a second, I don't do, I don't really care about those laws. I don't see any churches that care about those laws. Those things seem kind of silly to me, and someone says, well, yeah, well, Christ has fulfilled the law. And you go, oh, okay. Christ has fulfilled the law. And in one sense, you see like, well, I don't have to do, no, no, I want you to point, notice that stuff is ceremonial. So we stumble upon ceremonial things that have been fully embodied by Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not that we don't have to do them, it's that he has sufficiently accomplished them. And we're supposed to look to him in them. So we're we're no longer, we no longer have to wash our hands to be clean because he's cleaned us. But sometimes what we say then is, is well, then do I have to celebrate the Sabbath? And we get confused because we're like, well, I know I'm not supposed to murder. And I know I'm not supposed to covet. And I know I'm not supposed to lie. But but I, I can wear wool and cotton. And I think it's because we have this very flat view of the law. 
we have this notion of, well, if we don't have to do it there, now suddenly the whole thing's threatened. Rather than this deep view of the law, which is the moral and judicial tenets of the law are, have always been. Christ has never said, well, these are no longer important. In fact, he fully satisfied them. He did only good. What do you hunger and thirst for? Because you can't come up to this big wall of righteousness and say, well, I think because of Jesus, I'm just going to go under it. But I would say that he would say, well, I won't say what he would say. I'll just read what he read. He said, therefore, whoever relaxes on the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least. And the one who embraces it will be called great. To the person that sees goodness and longs for it, God says good. And to the person who sees goodness and avoids it, God says, least in the kingdom. Truly following Jesus will call you deeper into agreement with the implications of the law. Let's just think of it that way. Let's think of it in terms of agreement. Obedience is agreeing with God. That's what it is. When we disobey, when we sin, we, we have in our own mind, life is better over there. Right? We disagree with God. What Jesus is saying is, to those of you who are following after me, you will find that the pattern of your life will progressively fall into paths of agreement with the Lord. That's what he's saying. So don't be the person who uses Jesus as a way under the wall. But don't be the other person. This is the next verse. So if one of, if one of the things he's trying to prevent is people who marginalize the law because of Jesus, he says, watch out again. Look at verse 24. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now there's this opposite extreme that he's saying, but don't do that either. Don't, I'm not saying avoid the law, but I'm also not telling you that you need to satisfactorily accomplish the law. You don't have to do that. I did it, is what Jesus is saying. You don't have to do it. I did it. You can admire it without being oppressed by it. You can... You can Hunger and thirst for righteousness without panicking that you made a mistake. That's what he's saying. The first extreme is sort of like the, the law is meaningless. The second extreme is to look at this huge wall and think, I have no hope unless I roll my sleeves up and really start to climb. And if I get everything right, then maybe, just maybe I have hope. And you just start heading up, the, climbing up the wall as though maybe you can make it. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. And for his example, he uses the theoretical extreme. He says the scribes and Pharisees. They represent the theoretical extreme of behaviorism. Nobody in his culture was more careful about trying to climb this wall of righteousness and be good. Nobody was as good as the Pharisees. And he says, unless you're better than them. In fact, one translator actually says it this way. It's not like a little better than them. One translator wrote it, unless your righteousness far exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless you're way better than the theoretical extreme, give up. You can't be righteous that way. 
Can Jesus call you to hunger and thirst for something that, but you can in, hunger and thirst for it in a way where you're free? That's the question. Can you be freely invited into hungering and thirsting for righteousness without being defined by whether you are, whether you merit the phrase righteous? Can you just do good for goodness sake? Someone who's climbing this wall, they're wrapped around the axle about every little thing they do. They need to be good, and they need to be clean, and then when they wake up tomorrow, they need to be better. I need to be good, and I need to be clean, and when I wake up tomorrow, I need to be better. Two years, two years ago, I was in Israel, and part of my study in Israel was on uh, different traditions of Judaism. So we were studying the ultra-Orthodox tradition at the time. The ultra-Orthodox Jewish community now is sort of a, a fairly decent example of Pharisees. And um, we were visiting with one of them, and they shared with us that a good Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jewish family has three kitchens in their house. Three kitchens. Why? Because you cannot, this was the reason, the scripture, do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. I'm like, so you went from there to three kitchens? Like, any spots in the middle? But they worked it out. If you, if, if you want to be really careful and make sure that you never boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, you really need three kitchens in your house. So they have three kitchens in their house because they're climbing the wall. They're climbing the wall. Ultra-Orthodox Jews who own bakeries, when it comes time for Passover, you know, you can't, you're supposed to clean all the leaven out of your house, right? Clean all the leaven out of your house. So you know what they do? They sell their bakery at Passover. They sell it to a Gentile who doesn't care about being clean for a dollar or some minimal price. And then after Passover, they buy it back for the same price. So that while Passover is going on, their bakery, which might have some leaven, doesn't fall upon their shoulders. You know why? Because they're climbing the wall. It's endless. If you set to climb this wall, you will create for yourself an endless, never-ending set of, well, wait a second. If I do that, I, I might need to, and pretty soon you'll have three kitchens and you'll be selling your bakery for a dollar. Don't do it. The way Jesus is presenting this is he's saying, look, there's a wall of righteousness in front of you and you're going to have to deal with it in life. You're going to have to deal with it like, you're going to have to deal with the concept of, am I good? Am I good? And there's two big tendencies in this world. One is to ignore this wall. Ah, I'm saved. Anything goes, right? Just to, to downplay. The other one is to claim you are actually good and, and claim you've climbed the wall. And Jesus is saying, either one of those, either one of those is the wrong approach. The truth is, he has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the law. It's almost as though he's saying, there's a door in this wall, and, you need to, and that on that door is my name, and you need to open it up, and you need to walk through it. There's really no way to get, there is no way for you to get to God if you're going to go over this wall or under this wall. You have to walk through this wall, and in order for you to do that, you have to accept that Jesus Christ has done all of this for you. That's what this is, right? 
We're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness and the Lord comes to us and says, this is my body, eat. This is my blood, drink. Like, we are in one hand invited to see how grand and great moral perfection is, right? The Lord doesn't back off on that. We're told this is what moral perfection is and he did it. You don't have to do it. He did it. He fulfilled it for you. So come. I'm going to close this in prayer. And as we, if you bow your head with me and close your eyes and just take these thoughts before the Lord. Remind yourself that you're not coming to God because you are good. And you're not coming to the Lord because the Lord no longer cares about good. Lord, we come to you because you have satisfied the law. You, in every way, have fulfilled the standard and the meaning and the hope and the expectation of God. You've done what we cannot do, Lord, and then you've invited us into yourself. That's our prayer, Lord. That in the safety of the love of Christ, that we can admire and enjoy and look after and long for goodness. That we can hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we have the right appetite in this life. It's our prayer that because of what he's done for us, we can do that freely, Lord. And that the omen of this great and terrible standard, Lord, is, does not press down on us, Lord. Because we can walk through it in Christ's name. And we pray this in his name. Amen.